Well, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you know, we've been going through a series on spiritual maturity. We started with what that was. Then we moved into uh, what that should look like. Started very broadly with character and virtue. Moved in uh, more focused on what those characteristics and virtues are in the fruit of the Spirit. And are now today looking at the apex of the fruit of the Spirit, of all character and all virtue, the crown jewel of them all, and that is love. As the evidence of spiritual maturity, of growth, of what it means to look like and be like Christ, we see it most of all in this one. So I'm going to read the whole thing, we're going to study the whole thing, and then we're going to sing about it. This is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For what we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we open up your word today and study it and endeavor to understand it by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open up our hearts and pour the love of the Father into them. That we would not just understand your word, but that we would sense it and feel it. Pray most of all, Lord, that the, those of us gathered in this room today would, would come away from this knowing how loved we are by God. I pray that that would change everything. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I want to talk about this very famous chapter in three different headlines, okay? Starting from one, ending to another. Starting with Paul speaking about what happens when love is missing. Two, how love is then described. And three, why love should be longed for. 
These are basically the three things that he moves through as he goes through these next 13 verses. When love is missing, how love is described, and why love should be longed for. When he starts off this chapter, he's speaking about what it would look like if we did it basically anything outside of a motivation that's driven by love. Anything. Funny thing about this list that he brings up in the first three verses is they're actually very good things, right? He's not speaking about vices. He's not speaking about bad habits. He's not speaking about sin. He's actually speaking about uh, the gifts of the Spirit. In the Corinthian church, there was a lot of talk, especially, uh, especially in the chapters after this and in the chapters preceding it, about the, the gifts of the Spirit, specifically tongues and prophecy. And so this is a very poignant verse that he brings up, that no matter how many gifts of the Spirit you operate in, they don't matter if you are not doing them out of a place of love. And yet, these things are also in the broader context of that Greek culture that the Corinthian church was in. Notice that the ones that Paul brings up can also be taken at a much broader level. Not just, not just prophecy and tongues, but communication in general. Not just the word of knowledge, but the addition of knowledge in general. Charity is also another one that he brings up. All three of these things are actually bastions of the Greek culture of that day. They were shared cultural values in Greek culture. These were things that were judged as the evidence of living a successful, happy life. In other words, if you knew a lot, very big thing in Greek culture, right? If you were smart, if you were intellectual, if you, were, if you had the ability to communicate well, in Greek culture it was a big thing to have that type of rhetor- uh, rhetorical skill and talent, oratory. Uh, there was also a place in that culture to give and to uh, bless others that were less fortunate than yourself. Charity, if you had these things, you were expected to have a successful and happy life. And Paul here is not addressing Greek culture, but the church, perhaps because Greek culture maybe at some level, has influenced them in their view of success and happiness. And Paul begins to pick that list apart. And what Paul is picking apart is not just prophecy and the word of knowledge and intellect and charity and communication or any other things, uh, any other of those things, but rather the underlying motives behind those things three times, and after each one of these, he says, but if you have not love, the motive behind everything, if you have not love. In other words, our talents, our giftings, our decisions, our good deeds, whatever you want to add into that pool, they don't carry that much weight on their own merit into eternity, on their own weight. What does matter is whether those things are being done out of a place of love. And we see this right throughout all the scriptures from beginning to end. Jesus summarizing the law in Deuteronomy would say that the entire law, all 613 commands can be summarized in this way, love. He really did it in two points. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the, uh, and, and the uh, second Uh, The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Summarize the whole law in one command. Dazzled his listeners, left them speechless. Paul would later come up and say, actually in this text, 
that the greatest of all virtues, and again, this is a huge thing in Greek culture, virtues. What are the great virtues? Aristotle uh, with courage and steadfastness and all of those things. This was a huge thing, was determining what are the marks of a successful, happy life. Paul would come along and say the greatest of them all is love. Of course, he was simply reiterating what his Lord already said. John, the apostle, would come along and say, your identity as a disciple of Jesus is actually evidenced by the amount of love you show towards other people, other disciples. They will know you are his disciples by your love for one another. John 13, 35. I find no matter how many times I read verses on love and the importance of this, times I've read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the the deep sense that I have that love is so important, how utterly I fail in actually doing it the way that Jesus taught it, the way that Paul taught it. Even the times that I think that I'm being loving towards people, I've no- I notice just inklings of other, other motivations in them. I find myself doing things for other people with, you know, maybe some good intentions, but mixed with uh, less than altruistic intentions. Perhaps a little bit of manipulation or sympathy or a paying forward of sorts. Maybe wanting a favor in the future. Maybe trying to get something out of them. I am utterly shocked at how less than noble my good deeds are on a regular basis. No more am I shocked than when I read Paul's description of love. Because culture tells us a lot about love. And Paul gives us a different example. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we see a definition of love. Rather, we get descriptions. We get analogies. We get pictures. We get illustrations. And we get that right here. Love never ends. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude doesn't insist on its way. We get little vignettes of the type of love that God has in mind. Here's how love is described. Now, in English, we really only have one word for love. It's love. (laughs) But in Paul's language, in the Greek language, there are actually four different words for love because it was so complex. There was so much involved in how a person related to another person. C.S. Lewis was famous for writing a book on this very thing. It was called The Four Loves, where he goes through the four different types of love uh, that we inherited from Greek culture. The first one is called storge, uh, affection. It's really speaking about an affection that you have. Think of anything that that just gives you a thrill when you think about it. It could be an object, could be a hobby, could be an event. It's anything that you have an affection towards, something that you enjoy. It kind of steers that up in you. Then there's the next one. This, uh, this is phileo. This is where we get words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is a brotherly affection. This is a friendship, okay? This is really anyone that you are friendly towards. And generally, friendships are formed around storge. Have you noticed? 
we usually gravitate towards people and build a friendship on people who have something in common with us. And so you have a storge, an affection, and then you meet people who have the same storge, the same affection, and you become friends over time. You are building a phileo. The third one is eros. This means simply romance. This is when you see someone and uh, every single fiber in your being at first glance begins to erupt inside of you and you don't know why. Eros. You have romantic feelings towards that person that you crave. Now, all three of those things could happen at the same time. Maybe you have a deep, profound love for, you know, basket weaving or something, and you meet someone else who likes basket weaving, and you're basket weaving together, and you form a friendship, and you're hanging out for years, and all of a sudden, the light goes on, and you have eros. Now, all of a sudden, you have storge, phileo, and eros all together at once. They're all good, right? But the fourth one is agape, the fourth and final, and agape refers to a divine love. Agape is what Paul is using here. He's not speaking about phileo or eros or storge. He's speaking about agape when he says in verse 4, love, agape, is patient and kind. Agape does not envy or boast. Agape is not arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. It, uh, agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never ends. That's the type he's speaking about, which separates it from the rest. Now, if you can get the first three and have them be built on the fourth one, you've got something great. But make no mistake, the love that God is speaking about is a deep and profound divine love, agape love. You notice there's some things that Paul is hitting as he's going through this list. First grouping, patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not insisting on its own way, not irritable, not resentful. These can be categorized as a simple self-forgetfulness, something that the other three don't have, something that it, it has nothing to do with what I want in life or from the other person. This is a love of self-forgetfulness, very unique to agape, right? In the next one, we see uh, an element of truth. Agape does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is very important because so many of our romantic relationships with each other are built not on agape, but on a various other type. Maybe phileo, maybe storge, most often eros, right? And what is the thing that we use to justify everything that we do? I love them. People will get together. Sleeping together against or outside of the guidelines of God's kingdom. They justify that. How? Well, we love each other. No, you don't. You eros each other. You don't agape each other because agape cares about what's right. Agape does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. So agape takes it to another level. It doesn't just say, and here's where the other ones come in. Oh, I want to be with you at, no, uh, 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 at any expense and at any cost, even if it's at your cost, and even if it's at the cost of God's glory, because that's what I want. I love you. That's what we mean sometimes. 
Agape says, I will do anything for your ultimate well-being, even if it means restraining what I want right now. Agape. Truth. In the last, uh, in the last few, love bears all things that reeks of forgiveness, right? Huge. Can't build a relationship of love when there's no forgiveness. Believes all things. That's faith. This idea of expecting anything to happen. Anything to happen. Believing all things. Hope all things. Endure all things. Love never ends. This speaks of hope. This almost naive anticipation of great things to happen. This is a very exciting view of love that God has. Very deep. And we see in this a different quality not found in, in the other three. In all of the other three, affection, friendship, romance, even though they're good in their own right, they're all really marked and overlapped with my own personal needs. And that's not bad, per se. But left and driven by and motivated by my own personal needs, it's not really going to end well. Both storge and phileo and eros are driven and overlapping with each other with my own personal needs. Agape transcends that and is devoted to someone else's highest good based on their intrinsic value without any desire for reciprocity. That's agape. What love, and this is the last point, what love should, why love should be longed for may say, well, that is a very noble thought, but it's not really aligning well with where I am in life. I do care about what I want, and I want what I want, and I'm getting what I want right now, and you're ruining that, so I'm going to check out because my life is good. Why should I want that love, which seems to be more costly than I'm willing to give? And Paul then moves into a little story. It's shorter than a story. It's more of an analogy. He says in verse 11, you know, when I was a kid, I spoke like a kid. I thought like a kid. I reasoned like a kid. There was a time to be a kid. But eventually I became a man. I gave up childish ways. This has been the theme of our series, right? We start off drinking milk. We start off eating baby food, spiritually speaking. And we mature. The expectation of the believers to mature in our faith in Christ, in our life in Christ. And there comes a time where we grow up into the fullness of Christ. And Paul says, he ties in our spiritual maturity with love, not anything else. He says that is the sheer evidence of a mature believer is that there is more love in them. When I became a man, I started getting rid of childish ways. Now, in context, what are those childish ways? Being irritable, (laughs) being unforgiving, having my own way, being arrogant, being rude, being impatient, being unbearable, doubting, giving up easily. All things that I think I do at least every other day. That's a conservative estimate. Paul says there comes a time where we leave that behind. 
there must come a time where love actually transforms us and we find ourselves, now, not trying to be discouraging, like, hey, wake up on Monday morning and be completely loving just like Jesus. But there seems to be this, this view in Scripture that we can wake up, maybe not tomorrow morning, but maybe in a few weeks, a little less irritable or a little less prone to be irritated. Things have less of a hold on us because we care a little bit less about ourselves. We're able to be patient with people because we are a little less prone to be offended by their anger, by their outbursts, by their mistakes. And out of that patience, we can be kind. And we're able to be kind and not burn out because we're patient. We're able to do those things because we have less expectation on them. We're able to just freely give to them because we are expecting nothing in return. And we're able to do that because we are fueled by love itself. We're no longer loving people because we want love back from them. Phileo, storge, eros. But we are able to love because we have love, divine love. This is where everything in the swell of God's kingdom is headed. It's our destiny. It is the direction and the goal of Christian maturity. And Paul says, there will come a time, he says this in verse 12, when we will see what this looks like more fully. He says in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon we will see face to face. I'm thinking of the types of mirrors that he would have had in the first century. Wouldn't have been like ours. They would have literally been bronze with some uh, 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 metallic coat on there. And you, it would have been a really dim reflection of the human face. It says we can, barely, we can barely see our own reflection. But there will come a time where we will see love reflected in each other more vividly than we could possibly imagine. And he write in the book we recommended last week, put it this way, he said, love is the language they speak in God's world. And we are summoned to learn it against the day when God's world and ours will be brought together forever. It's the language we are learning to be able to speak with God one day, most fully, most articulately, and with one another. We're basically, if you want to think of it in this way, in a dress rehearsal for a future glory, and the script is love. What exactly, however, will we see in love today? What should we be seeing, although dimly, about what we are to expect in our future glory? Perhaps you would say, well, maybe it's how well we've loved each other. And yet Paul says, no. What you should expect and what you will see when Christ returns for you is something altogether more glorious. Look at what he says in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, he's saying, the deepest realization that you're going to have when you see God is not how much or how well you've loved others, but how well God has loved you. You're going to see not how well you knew God or how well you have loved him or how well you have obeyed him, but how deeply God has loved you. 
And this is the this is the glimpse, the glimpses that we should be getting in the interim period as we're heading in that direction. First John chapter three verse sixteen, famous verse. Some of, many of you know it. By this we know love that Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for bro- our brothers and sisters. A life that is marked by self-sacrifice, doing for others at, uh, at personal expense without any guarantee of reciprocity. And yet it's not just for friends. It's not just for loved ones. It wasn't just for people that did what Jesus wanted them to do. It wasn't for people that were aligned with God's kingdom that Christ himself loved. But we see in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This then is the standard for love. This is agape love. It's actually far deeper than the prior explanation that I gave gave before where we we are devoted to someone else's highest good. If we want to actually model what Jesus Christ did, if we want to understand the type of love that flows from the Father's heart, we'd have to say that agape is still more than desiring someone's highest good, which we might often do for our friends and our family and our loved ones. Agape is desiring the highest good of your mortal enemy. Without any guarantee of change, without any guarantee of kindness, without any guarantee of reciprocity, without any favor, without even so much as a pat on the back. Jesus loved people who turned away from him, who beat him, scorned him, whipped him, crucified him, mocked him, spit on him, pulled his beard out, made fun of him, and eventually turned away from him. He loved them to his death. Frederick Buchner, in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, writes, the love for equals is a human thing. I love this. Or friend for friend, brother for brother, it is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing, to love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy. With those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer This is God's love, and it conquers the world. And so it did. There's a book that came out in 2003 by a secular humanist philosopher by the name of Luke Ferry. He wrote a book for the first time charting the various major movements of philosophy since its birth in Greek culture, uh, running up till now with various degrees of modern humanism and everything in between. And his whole goal is to see how each of these developed and how they usurped the one that came before it. He's not a Christian. He's an atheist. He's a secular humanist. He's sympathetic towards Christianity. Very, very riveting book. Recommend it to anyone that 
likes to read about philosophy. Um, but in this, in the beginning chapters of his book, he writes about how Greek thought and Greek philosophy had such a deep, profound hold on everything, literally everything, religion, politics, social ways of life, everything that could possibly be touched was in a stranglehold by Greek thought. And then he describes how the juggernaut of Greek thought was almost overnight destroyed, usurped, and dismantled by this cute, unassuming worldview called Christianity in its fledgling state. How almost overnight, thousands of years of thinking a certain way was turned on its head by a simple concept. And as he would say it, it was essentially undone by, and I quote, a new definition of love. No longer was this logos, this way of thinking, as the Greeks came to put it, this distant, immaterial thing out there somewhere, but it actually became a person, John chapter 1, verse 14, and dwelt among us in Christ. And our way of salvation didn't come through virtues and doing better and bettering ourselves or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or uh, uh, developing more intellect or helping others, but it came through a single act of love that proved stronger than death itself. Brothers and sisters, the church was born out of that type of love. A type of love that in history has changed the course of history and has changed the world. And it can do it again. Do you believe that? But we must be captured by it again. You may ask, why is it so hard I hear all of these things, I read them, I find them agreeable, but in the day-to-day scheme of things, I find it nearly impossible to live out some of those tenets, especially that Paul threw out. I have a hard time being non-irritable, much less patient. Why is it so hard to love when it comes down to it? How do you love people who don't deserve it? How do you love people who wrong you, who betray you, who hurt you, who don't give back? After years of you giving to them, years and years, they don't give back. How do you keep going? The truth is, and I think we have to start in this place, we have to recognize at the beginning that we are unable, we are naturally unable to love this way. We can phileo our way just out of a box, okay? We can eros We can storge, but agape has to come down to us from above. Many of us are unable to love, to trust, and to forgive because if we're honest with ourselves, we're so busy replaying in our minds what other people have done uh, done to us. You ever done that? I find myself doing that even when I don't want to. It's almost like this automatic habit Even when I tell myself, I'll read this chapter and tomorrow someone will do something to me and I will completely forget the very thing that I spent 40 minutes preaching on. And it'll it'll be a small, it'll be like, it'll be like someone, you know, 
cutting me off on the highway or someone saying something to me that rubs me the wrong way. And my mind, you ever do this? Like my mind will just be filled with so much non-agape stuff. I will replay in my mind like what I should have said. I'm like, oh, should I, you know, like an hour later, I'm still thinking it through. And I'm like, that person said this and I should have, you know what I should have said? I should have said this. I said that and I was, I shouldn't have said that. You know what? I should have said this and this and then I'll create this three point sermon outline of non agape material that I should be, uh, I should have said to them. And yet it's too late. I can't say it to them. What I really want to do is hurt them, but I can't because the time is too late. So I'm just pretending like it's actually happening and I'm hurting them in my mind. And so I'm just continually doing this. I'm not loving, I'm not walking in love, I'm replaying the situation, I'm entertaining my own hurt, I'm playing the victim, I am clinging to my pain. And in doing so, I'm refusing to allow agape to transform me. If anyone needs love in that moment, it's not the person who, who, who hurt me, it's me. And I find at the end of all of that, pathetic scenario that is my life that I'm the person that needs it the most when we're victims we're too preoccupied to drink deeply of God's love but that's exactly what we need we need a well and we can't manufacture that we can't manufacture agape it must be given to us one of the most beautiful stories in the entire bible concerning what love is and what it does and how to get it. It's in the middle of Luke. You may, may be familiar with this. It's a long one. I, I won't read the whole thing, but Luke chapter 7, when Jesus is arguing with a bunch of people who are, uh, <laughs> he's arguing with a bunch of Pharisees, and they're trying to get him on the letter of the law, and he keeps bringing it back to love. And he He's reclining at a table with Pharisees and a woman comes in and this is a particular, this woman has a particular job, skill, believe she's a prostitute, right? The Pharisees look down on her. They would never allow a person like that in their home. Jesus doesn't just allow her in the home. This is actually not his home. This is the Pharisee's home, so even worse. But he welcomes her into his home. And as the story goes, she breaks an alabaster flask of ointment, stands behind him at his feet, weeping. She begins to wet his feet with his tears, wiping him with her hair, uh, 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 her hair, and his, uh, and kissed his feet, anointed his feet with the ointment, and the Pharisee is, is offended. And not only is that a tremendous and lavish example of love and adoration and worship, but it also has some messianic implications. There are reasons to believe that what this prostitute knew and believed was that this was the Messiah and she was preparing his body for burial. This was a very expensive, royal way to treat a dead body. And as the tale goes, this was probably a year's worth of wages, probably a family heirloom, something that you certainly don't use, much less, you know, spill on somebody. But she did it. She did it because she loved him. She did it because she knew that he was the one. But the Pharisees offended and says, says to him, Actually, he doesn't say it, say it to him. He thinks in his, in his thoughts. 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known what type of woman this is and who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Okay, he doesn't say it, he thinks it. And Jesus replies to him. <laughs> so bad. I want to do that. Jesus answers his thoughts and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) And he answered, oh, say it, teacher. Okay, I'm going to read you this part now. I'm almost done. Certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Common greeting in that culture. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He who is forgiven, who was forgiven little, loves little. Is there a chance that we have a difficult time loving and forgiving other people because we have not grasped the depth of our sin against God and how much we have been forgiven and loved by him? I honestly, from what I read here, don't see that there's any other way. If our hearts have been hardened, if we are stubborn inside, we're having a difficult time loving others. Perhaps we have not looked inward at ourselves to see the offense that we have been to a loving and holy God. And it's when we hoist our depravity, our sin, our rebellion against the sheer love and mercy of God to see what we have been forgiven of, that love shines the most brightly. Brothers and sisters, we must drink deeply of love that has been shown us. Our ability to love others is directly correlated to our ability to receive from God's love. Jesus said in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And his plan is to transform us into the types of people who know and give love. Jesus said, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in him. And at the end of the day, when Christ returns and all comes together in the swell of what God's kingdom is being consummated into and about, God's people, the church, will stand before God in all of his glory and in all of ours, fully formed and shaped into everything that he's designed us to be, fully and perfectly human. And you know what it means to be fully and perfectly human? It means to live fully in the realm of faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. These, types of, these are the types of people whose underlying motives are driven purely by these things. You may ask, well, why would we have faith in heaven? Why would we have hope in heaven? 
seems like once you get there, you know, it's all done. We just kind of sit around, you know, look at God's glory and stuff. (laughs) I think that comes from a really boring and myopic view of heaven, right? Faith is simply a trust in God. We'll still be trusting in God when we get there, maybe even more than we ever have. Hope is an anticipation of great things. If you believe that heaven is just a country club where we sit around and lounge by the pool and play, you know, uh, uh, evangelical Christian music from the 90s, then (laughs) I guess hope would be dead. But the picture that we have in the Bible is... (laughs) I'm sorry. Please bear with me. Love. (laughs) Picture we have in the Bible of the kingdom of God is far more rich. We have a picture that spans all the way to Genesis where God's kingdom is expanding and our job as his vice regents is to steward it. We lost control of that in the garden. We will regain control of it in heaven. And our job won't just to be to sit around and take up space, but to cultivate the garden. We'll be able to labor and work as it was meant to be apart from pain and toil, with enrichment, with personal enjoyment, to see things done, to live lives that are fulfilled and satisfied, to move forward, to even dream. That's what heaven is going to look like. And so you better bet, hope is going to be there. And of course, the greatest of these is love. And in heaven, our humanity will be perfected. In the interim period, he aims to form us to be just like that. May it be done according to his word. Heavenly Father, as we sing today, I pray that you would be present among us to bless. We know you're present here already. We know that you're everywhere. Who can escape from your spirit? If I go to the depths, you are there. If I rise to the, to the heavens, you are there. You're everywhere. But Lord, we want to ask that you would be present in a specific way to bless us, to open our eyes to see and to savor the love of God in Christ. No doubt there are so many people in this room who have been so wounded and discouraged and hurt, who have layers and layers of scars, things that simply can't be done away with with pat answers about love. But God, we believe, as we have for years, that a, moment in the, uh, that a moment in the presence of God will answer a lifetime of doubts and questions. And so we set ourselves at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ to experience the full depths of your love. And we pray that as we sing about how you have loved us, how you have loved us, may our hearts believe it and leap for joy. Not, not just that we would turn inward on ourselves to experience your love for ourselves, but that Santa Barbara would feel deeply loved by the church universal. God, we believe your love can change history. We pray that you would start with us. In Jesus' name, amen.